Thank you for joining us today for this life-changing message from River of Life. If you are ever in our area, we would love for you to join us. For more information, visit us at rolcrawfordville.com. That's rolcrawfordville.com. Or download our app in the App Store under ROL Crawfordville. Now, let's join Derek Gray as he teaches from the Word of God. All right, welcome everybody uh, to our study, uh, continuing study in the Sermon on the Mount. And uh, if you got your Bibles or your devices and you want to follow along, I would certainly suggest that you should. Um, we are in Matthew chapter 5, verses 38 to 42. Matthew chapter 5, 38 to 42. And as you can see on the screen, uh, the title of our lesson is An Eye for an Eye. Now, we will not get this, through this tonight. This is a uh, a very, very important passage, and uh, we want to make sure that we take our time uh, going through it. Now, as we've done the last few weeks, let's begin in um, Matthew 5.20. These are the words, of course, of Jesus. He said this, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that or surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will not ever enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, after he makes that statement, in the rest of chapter 5, as you all know by now, he gives us five examples or five illustrations of a righteousness that does uh, surpass that of the scribes and the Pharisees. Now, we have already covered four of these uh, over the last month or so, and tonight we are looking at the fifth illustration, uh, which I have entitled Vengeance. So let's read the entire passage, Matthew five thirty-eight to 42. Jesus said, You have heard that it was said, An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, Do not resist the one who is evil. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, then you turn to him the other also. If anyone sues you and takes your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow uh, from you. Now, it's my guess, I don't know this for sure, but if you're familiar with the Sermon on the Mount and you're familiar with this passage, my guess is that some of you have been waiting to get to this point. And you've been thinking, okay, how's he going to handle this one? Because let's face it, this at first glance... In fact, I I think you could probably divide most Christians into two camps. A lot of us come to this passage and we see this turn the other cheek and go the extra mile and and give them your, if they sue you for this, give them. And we we see all that and and I think we come into two camps. A lot of us come and look at this and we just look at that and think, I don't even know what to do with that. That's impossible. That's ridiculous. And, and And it so confuses us in some way or another that most of us just turn around and walk away from it and we don't even try. We just think, look, I, I, I just can't do that. And so we just give up and we walk away. On the other hand, there are, is another camp who they read that and they say, well, it's, it's as plain as the nose on your face. Just take it literally. Do exactly what it says. And, that's how, and they go out and they try to live that. By the way, both those camps are completely wrong. Both of those are wrong. And so this is a very important scripture. It is probably one of the most abused scriptures in the church. 
Uh, it's also one of the most frequently under, misunderstood, not only uh, in the Sermon on the Mount, but probably in the whole Bible. And, and by the way, those two go together. When you misunderstand something, it tends to get abused, right? So th- this is why we're only, this is only part one tonight. We're not going to hurry our way through this. We're going to make sure that we get a, a good foundation tonight, and then next week we will we'll really dive into it. Now, the way we're going to do this is exactly the way we've done it uh, over the, the first four illustrations. We're going to start out by going all the way back to the Old Testament. And, and we're going to see this phrase, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. What did that actually mean in the Old Testament? And what was the point of it? What was God's purpose in putting that in the Mosaic Law? Once we've done that, we're going to come forward about 1,400 years to the Pharisees, and we're going to see how they, how they butchered it, how they messed it up like they always did. And then, of course, we will turn... Uh, to the words of Jesus and see how he rightly interprets what an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth means. So let's begin by going all the way back to the Old Testament and looking at the law of Moses. Now this phrase, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, is found three times in the Old Testament. It's found in the book of Exodus, it's found in the book of Leviticus, and it's found once again in the book of uh, Deuteronomy. Now we'll look at a couple of those tonight, but the first one we're going to look at is in the book of Exodus uh, in chapter 21. Now, this is what's known, uh, today we would call this case law, okay? This is a law in the Old Testament that deals with a specific situation. It's not like the Ten Commandments, thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not lie, thou shalt not commit adultery. That, that's, not this, that's not what this is. This is dealing with a specific situation. So let's read it. It says, when men strive together and hit a pregnant woman so that her children come out. Now that word strive, by the way, means fight. So what you got here is you got two men that are fighting. They're wrestling, they're slugging it out, maybe they got weapons. And then somehow in this struggle, they inadvertently hit a pregnant woman so that she gives birth. This is the situation. And it says this. So it says... If it happens so that her children come out, but there is no harm. In other words, the baby is perfectly fine. It says, The one who hit her shall surely be fined, as the woman's husband shall impose on him, and he shall pay as the judges determine. But if there is harm, for example, let's say the baby, it's, it's too early in the pregnancy, the baby can't survive, and it dies, then you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, Tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. Now, again, we'll also look a little bit later at Leviticus 24 and Deuteronomy 19, where those phrases are also uh, used. Now, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth was a fundamental principle of Old Testament civil law. In fact, this principle still continues to be the basis of our legal system today. In Latin, it's known as lex talionis, which means the law of retaliation. And at the very foundation of this form of law is this principle of proportionate punishment. In other words, we would know this as let the punishment fit the crime. Now see, these laws, and and this is so important to understand because we've got today, my guess would be if I I went around and asked one of you, if I say eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth, almost every single one of us think about revenge. And we think about vengeance, getting someone back. 
These laws were the very opposite of that. They were made to ensure not only that the punishment would fit the crime, but even more importantly, that the punishment didn't go beyond the crime. That was their, that was their whole point. Now, why would this be needed? Why would you need a law and why would you need a, a principle that made sure that the punishment fit the crime? Well, here's why. And the answer is the same as we saw a few weeks ago when it came to divorce. It's the same as you saw a couple of weeks ago when we talked about the swearing of oaths. These types of laws were needed to inhibit and control excessive behavior. Okay? Now listen, what I'm going to talk about right now, I'm not going to go into a lot of detail because every single one of you are going to know what I'm talking about. When someone does something to you, every single one of us are familiar with that feeling that we get, right? That feeling, man, that I want to get them back. And, 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 and this is at the very heart of who we are as, as sinful human beings. You see, the natural tendency of someone when we get hurt is not just to hurt them in the same way. We want to do what? We want to hurt them more. See, the fact is, justice is not enough for us. An eye for an eye is not enough for us. They, they, they took an eye, I want a head. Right? That, that we want to hurt them more than they hurt us. This is just this ugly thing down in each, each one of us. By the way, let me explain why it's there. And I think this is important. You see, God is a God of justice, and each and every one of us are made in the image of God. Therefore, we have a desire for justice. Just watch kids play. You don't have to teach kids about fairness and justice. Just watch them. And you'll hear a kid say, well, that's, that ain't fair, right? You see them do that all the time. There's this, there's this thing inside of us where we just we want, thing, we want right, wrongs to be made right, Okay? That, and that is a, that's a godly desire. God is a God of justice. But here's the problem. Sin comes into the picture, and it takes godly desires, and it perverts them. Think about sexual desires. Nothing wrong with godly. God gives us sexual desires. And, and as long as they're kept within the confines of a marriage between a man and a woman, it's a wonderful and majestic and beautiful thing. But sin comes in combines with those and it perverts them into just the lowest forms of depravity, right? The same thing is true for justice. We all have a desire for justice, but sin comes in and it perverts justice and it turns it into vengeance. We're not satisfied with justice. We want vengeance. And that is one of the ugliest results of the fall of man. Let me give you a couple of, of case studies, if you will, or examples from the Old Testament. One of them I mentioned a few weeks ago when we talked about divorce, and this is with the case of Lamech. You'll find this in Genesis chapter 4, uh, verses 23 to 24. There's a guy named Lamech. He is the, he's the sixth generation down from Cain. So he, Cain would be his great, 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 great granddaddy. And Lamech said this, I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me, if Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. So here he is, he's, he's bragging about the fact that a young man struck him, and in retaliation, he killed him. In other words, an eye for an eye, if he struck you, he should have what? 
just struck him back. But he didn't stop at that. He killed him. And notice what he said. If Cain's revenge... See, he's not interested in justice. He says, if Cain's revenge is sevenfold, mine is 77. In other words, you do something to me, and I'll come down on you 77 times harder. And he's bragging about it. This is very early in Genesis. This, this desire for vengeance, this excessive retaliation is already in play. Another example of this is the story about the rape of a woman named Dinah. Um, Y'all are all, I'm sure, familiar with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And Jacob has 12 sons, and those 12 sons uh, become the, the, the 12 tribes of Israel. Well, Jacob also had a daughter, and her name was, was Dinah. And uh, when they had come back uh, into the promised land, they, they had camped out there among the, uh, the people of the land. And Genesis, 30, Genesis 34 tells us this. It says, Now Dinah the daughter of Leah, whom she had borne to Jacob, went out to see the women of the land. So one day she's, she leaves their camp and, and goes out into the land to visit with some of the other women. And it says, When Shechem, the son of Hamor the Hivite, the prince of the land, saw her, he seized her and he lay with her and he humiliated her. So in other words, other words the son of the kind of the prince of the, of the land or the king of the land or whatever, he sees her and she's very beautiful and he takes her and he rapes her. She comes back, she tells her dad, she tells her brothers, and they're trying to decide what to do. And, and as they're talking about it, uh, Hamor, who's the kind of the prince of the land, he shows up with his son. And I won't read the whole story, you can go back and read it later, but basically this is what he said. He said, look, my son, he, he, you know, he did wrong, um, he, he, you know, uh, he, he did wrong, obviously, but he, he loves her, he wants to marry her. And I want to make this thing right. So he said, you just name your dowry. You name your bride price, and, and I'll pay it. And, and we'll marry these two together, and we'll make this thing right. And I think Jacob would have probably done that, but her brothers, they were very angry about what had happened. So they come up with a plan. And this is what they say to those guys. They said, okay, we'll let her marry your son, but... We, our, our women can't marry your men unless your men are circumcised. It's just one of these cultural things that we have. They said, but if you'll circumcise your men, then we'll let our, our women marry into your, into your family. So uh, Hamor and Shechem go back to the city, and somehow, in Miracle of Miracles, they, commit, they, they convince a, a, a city full of mature men to all get circumcised. How that happened, I have no clue. But they did it. They did it. And it says this, On the third day when they were sore, two of the sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, came against the city while it felt secure and killed every single male. They took their flocks and their herds, their donkeys, whatever was in the city and the field, all their wealth, all their wives, all their little ones. That's not justice, is it? See, that one guy did wrong. That one guy committed the crime. That one guy should have been punished, but instead they killed every man in the city. They hadn't done anything. What about those women that lost their husbands? They hadn't done anything. What about the children that lost their, 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 their fathers? See, this is the kind of thing that went on in ancient times, these excessive acts of vengeance. And by the way, we, we've heard of the Hatfields and McCoys, right? 
I mean, it's this idea of you, you, you kill one of mine, I kill five of yours. You kill five of mine, I kill 20 of yours. And it just, it can go on for years and years and years. Listen, an eye for an eye was instituted in God's law to put an end to that kind of thing. An eye for an eye has got nothing to do with vengeance, and it's got everything to do with justice. Now, so that's the, that's the first thing I want to point out about the Old Testament law, because most of us get it wrong. We think an eye for an eye, we think vengeance. No, it's the exact opposite of that. It was to control or mitigate these excessive acts of vengeance, and God said in His law, you can't do that. You can take an eye for an eye, a hand for a hand, a tooth for a tooth, but you can't go beyond that. The punishment has to fit the crime. Now, there's something else that was important in the Old Testament, and that is how justice was to be enacted. Let's go back to Exodus 21 and read that again. It says, When men strive together and they hit a pregnant woman so her children come out, there's no harm. The one who hit her shall surely be fined as the woman's husband shall impose, and he shall pay as the judges determine. Here's the thing. In the Old Testament, you never got to set your own uh, 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 punishment. That was always determined by the judges. Even in this case, if the husband says, well, he owes me a hundred shekels, the judges were the ones to decide whether that was fair or not. By the way, why why would God not allow the offended party to do that? Because again, it's the problem of sin, right? Because I'm not satisfied with justice. I'm not satisfied with an eye for an eye. I want more. So God said the judges have to decide that. So in the, this, this, this principle was never to be decided by individuals. It was always meant to go before a court system. Let me give you another example, Deuteronomy 19. Once again, this is a, an example of case law dealing with a particular situation where somebody bears false witness uh, or lies against somebody else. It says this, Both parties to the dispute shall appear before the Lord, before the priest and the judges who are in the office, and the judges shall inquire diligently. If the witness is a false witness and has accused his brother falsely, then you shall do to him as he has meant to do to his brother. So shall you purge the evil from your midst, and the rest shall hear and fear, and shall never again commit any such evil among you. Your eye shall not pity. It shall be life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. So once again, it's this principle of, 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 of proper justice, but notice it's the court systems that decide, not the uh, individual. Now, I do want to be clear about something, because I think this is important. This, these passages in the Old Testament, I don't think were generally... You didn't have to literally require an eye for an eye if you didn't think that was right. Now, certainly, don't get me wrong... A judge in Israel, like in the case of a pregnant woman that we saw earlier, if she gave birth and that child died, he would certainly require the life of the man that did that. So so certainly they could do that. But sometimes that didn't make sense. Sometimes there might be cases where an eye for an eye may not be the best punishment. Let me give you an example. Let's say that somehow there's a man and he, through whatever act, ends up destroying another man's hand. So he crushes it, he cuts it off. Somehow that man is, is now crippled. So he, he's got one hand. He's, he's not going to be able to work with his oxen. He's not going to be able to plant his fields. He's going to have a lot of problems. Now let me ask you, is it real justice for me to go cut off the other guy's hand? 
How does that help the guy that's got his hand cut off, right? Wouldn't it make more sense to let the other guy keep his two hands and spend the rest of his life working and helping that guy supply his needs, helping that guy plant his field? See, this is the, so, so this idea of an eye for an eye, it doesn't always mean it's got to literally be that. Sometimes it makes more sense to do something else, like in this case. So judges were given the leeway to make wise decisions that could benefit uh, both um, parties. Now, that's how it was in the Old Testament. Let's come forward about 1,400 years, and let's come to the scribes and the Pharisees. And let's see what they did. Now, let's look at Jesus' statement. Now, I'm not going to read all of it tonight. I'm just going to read verse uh, 38. Jesus said this, You've heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Now, we know that's wrong, right? If you've been here the last few weeks, you know something's wrong with that. By the way, the, the statement is perfectly fine. That's exactly what it said in the Old Testament. But there's something wrong with it. It's always, they always interpret it wrong. What was their interpretation? Well, I decided I would do an experiment this week. I first thought about, you know, I'm going to go up to Publix or Winn-Dixie, and I'm just going to stop somebody and ask them, say, can I, can I ask you a question? And if they said, yeah, they didn't run away from me screaming. I was going to say, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. What does that mean to you? I just want to know the man on the street. What, is, what does it mean, the phrase, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth? Well, I never did, I did, never did make it to Crawfordville uh, this week. So I decided to do the next best thing. I got on ChatGPT. Anybody here know what ChatGPT is? Man. <laughs> All right, you guys. So ChatGPT is this new thing that is unbelievably cool and unbelievably terrifying at the same time. It is a, it's this artificial intelligence, and you can ask it to do anything. You can ask it to do anything. You can ask it to, to write a sermon for you. I could have asked it to write this lesson for me. You can ask it to write programming code for you, and it'll do it. You can ask it to write... Oh, I saw a guy ask it to write a worship song. You, I, I saw a guy the other day ask it to explain the gospel of Jesus Christ, and it did a very good job. Because what it's been doing for the last 10 years is just consuming everything on the Internet. Everything about every subject on the Internet. And so it's read every sermon, every lesson I've ever taught, and anybody else. So it's got all this information, so you just ask it anything you want it to ask. And so I asked ChatGPT this question. I don't know if you guys are going to be able to read it, but I asked ChatGPT, what does the phrase an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth mean? Now, it gave me two answers. First of all, the first, par the first paragraph was exactly dead on right. He told me exactly what I just told you. But in the second one, it was really interesting. It says, in modern times, the phrase is often used metaphorically to refer to any situation where someone seeks revenge. And it goes on to say this, it's worth noting that the phrase is often interpreted as promoting a cycle of revenge and retaliation. So of all this stuff that ChatGPT has read, it thinks eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth in modern times refers to uh, revenge. I actually went out to, a, there's a, a dictionary out there uh, for idioms, and I looked up an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, and it said this, if you want to look at synonyms, go look under revenge and vengefulness, right? So again, what I'm trying to get across to you guys is we have this idea that, uh, that, that it's all about revenge and it's all about 
vengefulness, even though that was the exact opposite was it was in the Old Testament. So what these both of these things did is two things. Number one, they turn a positive in the Old Testament, which is about justice. They turn it into a negative and make it about revenge. That's the first mistake they made. The second mistake they made is neither one of those made any mention of judges or courts or anything like that, which in the Old Testament, it had to be done through a court system. Okay, So those are the two mistakes that modern people make. By the way, the scribes and the Pharisees made the exact same two mistakes. They had turned an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth into something about vengeance, and they've made it completely personal and took the court system completely out of it. You see, everything they did was legalistic. In their mind, they could do anything they wanted to do as long as they stayed in that box, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. So if you came to them and and you did something to them, they'd turn around and do the same thing back to you, and they'd lay their head down at night and think, boy, I'm I'm a good person because I didn't go... Everybody with me? As long as I didn't go beyond the rules, I'm a good person. It was their right to get revenge. It was their right to get, uh, to get retribution. And that's the way they saw it. And as long as they did it the right way, it's like the person, remember a divorce a few weeks ago? What was the mistake they made? As long as they did it legally, as long as they gave her a certificate, it didn't matter the reason. They, they could be divorcing her because uh, she burnt their dinner. They didn't care. But as long as they did it legally, they were fine. They did the same thing here. As long as I stay within the boundaries of an eye for an eye, I can get any revenge that I want. That was the problem. There's a great example of this in in the New Testament in Matthew 18. Um, Y'all remember the story of the unforgiving servant? uh, Jesus tells this parable. And there's this servant that owes his master, I think it's like 10,000 talents. I think in my Bible it says that's 20 years worth of salary. He owed his master 20 years of, of salary. And his master's going to throw him in a debtor's prison. And he, he, says, he says, sir, please you know, have compassion, have mercy on me. And, and he did. The, the, the master said, okay, I forgive you the debt. Go on, you're, you're, you're free. And then Matthew 18 tells us this. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him 100 denarii. By the way, a denarii is a day's wage. So that servant owed him just over three months' salary. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, Pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, Have patience with me, and I'll pay you. He refused, and he went, and he put him in prison until he should pay the debt. By the way, that was his right. When someone owed you and didn't pay, you could put him in a debtor's prison. That was your right. So this guy could lay down and thought, Well, I hadn't done anything wrong, even though he had no mercy and no compassion, and no forgiveness, he could lay his head down and think, boy, I'm a righteous man, because that's my right. See, that's what the Pharisees did. It was their right. They, they, they didn't look beyond the letter of the law to see what was behind it. Now, let's turn to Jesus, and we'll spend the, uh, just a few more minutes here tonight, and then all of next week looking at his words about turning the other cheek and all of that stuff. He says this in verse 39. I'm just going to read this part of the verse tonight. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. Do not resist the one who is evil. And again, he'll go on, turn the other cheek, go the extra mile, give him your cloak, etc. 
I mentioned earlier, these sayings of Jesus in these few verses are some of the most abused um, uh, verses in the Bible. They have been used throughout the years to support pacifism, um, uh, you know, to teach people that there, there should be no war. I mean, there were people who would not go and fight Hitler because of these verses. Now, I understand if you don't want to go fight what you might call an unjust war, but when there's an evil man out there killing millions of people, there were Christians that said, I can't go do it because Jesus said, don't resist Hitler. Do not resist. That, that's the way they look at it. They have been used to teach that believers shouldn't be in the military. They've been used to teach that believers shouldn't be policemen because that's what policemen do. They resist evil people, right? They've been taught uh, you shouldn't work in a court system like a prosecuting attorney. Uh, or, or, or these verses have even been used to say that you and I should not practice self-defense. Do not resist an evil one, right? It says it right there. It's plain as the nose on your face. Okay, these are some complicated verses. In fact, they, they've even been used to promote lawlessness and anarchy. And you, I'll show you that here in a minute. Now, we want to be very careful going through these verses. and make, I want to make sure you understand what they mean. In order to do that, I want to give you four principles of interpreting the Bible. And we have to remember these principles as we go through this, this passage. I want to give you four of them. Here's the first one. The Sermon on the Mount is not a code of ethics. Okay? The Sermon on the Mount is not a code of ethics. What I mean by that is you should never look at the Sermon on the Mount as Jesus doing away with the Old Testament law and replacing it with a new law. That's not what the Sermon on the Mount is about. He's not saying, that you used to have to follow those rules, now I want you to follow these rules. Listen, Christianity is not about following rules. Christianity is, trying, is about trying to be like somebody. If you're trying to follow rules, you got it all wrong. It's trying to be like Him. Getting up every day and looking at Him and trying to be like Him. There's, a lot of people get frustrated with the New Testament because they go look and say, well, what am I supposed to do in each and every situation? The New Testament is not like that. It's not meant to be like that. It gives us principles. It gives us guidelines. But it doesn't give us exact rules for every situation. And it's not meant to do that. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones makes a great statement that I remember. He said this, Is it not tragic that those of us under grace seem to always want to be under the law? Is that not tragic? That we, we, just give me the rules, man. Just tell me what I'm supposed to do. Just, just give me a bunch of rules so I can get up every day and check those rules off. That's not Christianity, folks. That's legalism. That's the law. We, 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 we got to get out of that. So if you're running, to the, if you're running to, the, to the Sermon on the Mount to find a bunch of rules, you're looking in the wrong place. That's not the point of it. The Sermon on the Mount is there to emphasize the spirit of the law. What, what's that law about? What's that law trying to teach us? What's the principle, the guidelines Behind it, It's not a rule of thumb that you live with every single day. That's the first principle of interpretation. The second one is this. If we read a teaching of Jesus and that teaching appears ridiculous or, or impossible, then we're wrong. If you read a teaching of Jesus and you say that's ridiculous or that's impossible, then our interpretation is wrong because there is no teaching of Jesus that is ridiculous or impossible. The teachings of Jesus are meant to be applied to our daily life. So if we immediately think, 
I can't do that, you're probably interpreting it wrong. Or if you immediately think that's impossible, then more than likely you're interpreting it wrong. Let's keep that in mind. Number three, Scripture never, ever contradicts Scripture. That's, that's, the, the last two are like two primary rules of interpretation. Scripture never contradicts Scripture. And number four is context, context, context. You cannot take three verses out of context and bring them over here and build a theology around them. You always have to read the verses in context. Now, these four principles of interpretation tell us that you cannot take Jesus' words literally. You apply those four principles of interpretation, you cannot take His words literally. Now, I will back that up much more next week. But a lot of people do that. One of the most famous people that did this is a guy by the name of Leo Tolstoy. He was a Russian writer. He wrote a big book called War and Peace, uh, just very well known. And he was a Christian. And he opened up the Sermon on the Mount, and he read the words of Jesus, Do not resist the evil one. And he took it literally. And because of that, he, he went around preaching anarchy and pacifism. Now, you, everybody know what anarchy is? Anarchy means they don't believe in any government at all. They don't believe in any laws at all. It's just everybody just survive on your own, right? Now, you may think, well, how does he get there? Well, think about it. If you really take Jesus' words, do not resist an evil one, then there is no civil law. You can't have policemen. You would have no courts and no judges and, and, and no, no armies. Everybody with me? I mean, if you really think that's what he means, and he did, then you can't have any of those things. Now, immediately, when we think about that list right there, what is our response to that? Well, that's ridiculous. <laughs> right? That's ridiculous. In fact, that's impossible. But even more important than that, that contradicts Scripture. Right? Think about Isaiah 1-7 in the Old Testament. Learn to do good, seek justice, reprove the ruthless, defend the orphan, plead for the widow. You'll never find anywhere in the Old Testament where it doesn't, it's not teaching us to fight against injustice, to fight against evil. You get to the New Testament, and Romans 13 tells us what the government, what these civil authorities are there for. It says, rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? For he is God's servant for your good. He does not bear the sword in vain. He's talking about policemen and, and courts and judges and, and civil authorities. He is the servant of God and avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. So the New Testament clearly teaches us that God uh, ordains government to keep order, to resist criminals and evil doers. So... If Jesus really means don't resist the evil one literally, then he's contradicting Scripture. So he doesn't teach anything that's ridiculous. He doesn't teach anything that's impossible. And he doesn't contradict the rest of Scripture. Now, by the way, why would people make the mistake of thinking that he really means that? They make that mistake because they take it out of context. I mentioned earlier, tonight is five months since we started our study. We've been here five months. And like I said, some of you may have had this passage kind of circled. <laughs> Man, I can't wait till he gets there. But you see, we needed five months to get here because we needed everything that came before this in order to understand this passage. 
You can't understand this passage if you don't understand what came before it. And what came before it was the Beatitudes. Do you remember the first few weeks? Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn, the meek, the who hunger and thirst for righteousness, the merciful, the pure in heart, the peacemakers. These are the sons of God. You remember what we said? Who is he describing? He's describing Christians. He's not telling you how to get saved. He's telling you this is what people look like who have been saved. These are the characteristics of Christians, of God's children. The Sermon on the Mount is a picture of a Christian, not an unbeliever. It's a picture of a Christian. So Jesus, He's talking to Christians. He's talking to people who are born of God. He's talking to people who are born again, who are regenerated, who are filled with the Spirit of God. He's not talking to unbelievers. He's not pe- to pe- talking to people who are slaves of sin, who are sold out to Satan. has nothing to do with unbelievers whatsoever. None. So people that take this and walk out and say the whole world should act like this, that's ridiculous. That's ridiculous. I ran into somebody the other day that said they don't set rules for their children. I said, that's ridiculous. Because you're t- you're, you're, they're a bunch of lawless heathens. They need the law. You better have laws. That's what laws are for. See, Jesus is not... T- this teaching He's making is not for the world. It's not for unbelievers. It's got nothing to do with them. Listen to 1 Timothy 1, 9-11. Understand this. The law is not laid down for the just but for the lawless and the disobedient, for the ungodly and the sinners. Listen, as long as there's sinners and ungodly and unbelievers, you've got to have laws. That's the whole point in the Old Testament. That's the Old Testament laws is to mitigate this, this, this sinful behavior that was rampant amongst people. And as long as we have unbelievers, we've got to have laws. We've got to have civil authorities. That's what the law is for. Not for just, not for the people that are born, born again. So here's what we, I, I think we forget this sometime, but you do understand that we're under grace, but anybody that's unbeliever is still under law. They're not under grace. They're still under the law. They're still beholding to an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. That's, that's where they are. I'll say this before I leave this subject. I've often heard people say, which is true, by the way, you cannot legislate morality. And we shouldn't try to legislate morality, but you can certainly legislate to mitigate the consequences of immorality. God did that all the time. That's the whole Old Testament right there, trying to corral these, these just crazy sinners that are just running off and doing anything they want to do. We certainly need laws to, to mitigate the consequences of immorality. So Jesus' teaching is not for the world. His teaching, what it is about, is a Christian in our relationship to others as individuals. That's what it's about. So first and foremost, we need to understand that. This teaching is for you and I. It's for born-again believers. It's not for unbelievers at all. Matthew 5.39, I read it again. I say to you, Christian, he's not telling the world not not to... He's not telling, you know, countries don't resist an evil dictator. It's got nothing to do with that. He's not saying don't have a court system that doesn't throw criminals in. It's got nothing to do with any of that. I say to you, Christian, I say to you, born-again believer, do not resist the one who is evil. Those words are for you and I. We need to understand that. By the way, a Christian's relationship to the state as a citizen 
This has nothing to do with that. If you want, to, you want to read about our relationship to the state, go read Romans 13. Go read 1 Peter 2. But this has nothing to do with it. This has to do with my relationship with an individual. It has nothing to do with my... Listen, if you want to be in the army, go join the army. If you want to be a policeman, go join the police. If you want to be a prosecutor, go be a prosecutor. This has nothing to do with that. And I'll show you that next week. It has nothing to do with that. It's about individuals, one-on-one. What, it, what is in play here, and I'll close. What is in play here is our attitude toward ourself. You see, what Jesus is asking us to do in these verses is die to self. He's asking us, you've heard it said, an eye for an eye, that you can get justice. But I'm asking you, Jesus said, to give up that need to be recompensed when somebody does you wrong. I'm asking you to give that up. I'm asking you when an individual does something wrong to you to give that up. Now listen, this does not, does not mean that we just let criminals run around and hurt us and kill us. That does not mean that at all. Listen, if, if, if somebody breaks into your home and robs you, that man is a criminal, that's lawless, he's under the law, he should be punished by the law. That, there, you, you, you don't have to sit back and say, well, I'm not going to press charges. Sure you do. He's a criminal. He's under the law. He should pay for his crimes. See, that's the government's job. That's the civil authority's job is to punish criminals. Our job is to forgive. You understand that you can do both? You do understand that, right? That that, that criminal who's under the law, has broken the law, can be punished by the law properly, but I can come over here and I don't have to, I don't have to hate him. I can still forgive him. He's answering to the law, but yet I said, you know what, I don't, need, I don't need to get anything out of that. This is what he's talking about. He's talking about our relationship to individuals. And we'll get more into this, what he means next week about turning the other cheek and going the extra mile, and we'll talk about all these things. But I wanted to just lay the foundation tonight to make sure we understood what it meant in the Old Testament and also to make sure that we understood what it didn't mean. Let's pray. Father... Lord, we love you. Thank you for your word. We know, God, that this is a, um, a complicated passage and um, there's a lot that goes uh, into it. So I just ask for wisdom for myself that I can somehow explain it uh, in the right way. I ask for uh, wisdom for everyone that's listening so that uh, we can comprehend what we hear and understand it deep in our heart. God, I just, I just know, I know more than anything that you want us to be merciful compassionate, peacemaking people. That's what you want for us. That's what Christians do. And that we can't just read that and say that. We've got to exhibit that in our everyday interactions with other people. God, help us to be that kind of people. Somehow take this passage and do something miraculous in each and every one of us. And God, lastly, above all, God, help us to be more like Jesus. Help us to be more like the one who was, when he was reviled, he didn't revile in return. God, he, he, he didn't like evil. He's the one that turned those, uh, those tables over. And sometimes we need to be some, turning over some tables. That, that's perfectly fine with you, God. But we cannot have hatred or unforgiveness or bitterness or anger in our heart against individuals. You never did that, and you will not allow us to do it. Help us to be that kind of people. We love you, and we thank you for all that you do. In Jesus' name, amen.
Amen. Thank you. You guys are dismissed. Thank you again for listening to this message from River of Life. If this message has touched you today, or if you need someone to pray with, please contact us at 850-926-1200 or email us at info at rolcrawfordville.com. We also want to encourage you to visit us this Sunday morning at 1030 a.m. in Crawfordville. Please visit us online at rolcrawfordville.com for more information and directions.